Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for Preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we go through our third annual Christmas wish list in tonight's episode. Just in time for jolly old Saint Nick, Matt and I are ready to share our deepest longings as we once again offer our picks for classic, contemporary films for entry into the Criterion canon. Selecting one classic and contemporary title apiece, we will also offer our thoughts on cover art and supplements to round out our dream releases. Join Matt and me as we hope the Criterion Collection checks its list twice and finds us not naughty, but nice. Matt, I hope uh, you're getting into the holiday cheer as we meet again to talk about our dreams for titles we'd like to see in the Criterion canon. Uh, As we start tonight's episode, I think we'll go ahead and start with the classic picks. And if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and start with my own. Uh, But before I do that, if you have any thoughts you want to offer just before we jump into our own picks here, just any thoughts you have about the Criterion Collection right now as we come to the end of the year, uh, I thought maybe we could just do that before we jump into our picks. Sure. Yeah, this is. Um, I I think I have the most fun with this episode every year. I mean, not that I don't enjoy doing the other episodes, but it's kind of a nice change of pace, and it's always interesting to to hear what you pick. And um, it's been a pretty interesting year for Criterion. I mean, I think it's uh, really. I, I mean, it's well established, uh, of course, as kind of the the premier label for. Um, for world cinema in particular, but um, some really landmark releases. Uh, tomorrow, the the Bergman box comes out, which I think is maybe arguably a, the greatest, if not one of the greatest home video releases ever, just on paper. I mean, we'll see how the set is actually once once I get it, but uh, it's pretty exciting. And of course, um, The Loss of Filmstruck, I think, is probably acutely on everyone's mind right now. But uh, we're excited to to know that Criterion's going to be coming out with their own streaming service, the, the Criterion Channel, and it's been kind of a roller coaster of emotions there, I think, for a lot of film fans. Uh, so, yeah, any any thoughts on your part or highlights from the year? Certainly, I'm also with you and very much anticipating the Bergman box set that comes out tomorrow. I'll be picking up a copy of it. Uh, there's been a lot of interesting releases this year. We're starting to see the 2019 releases getting named for the first few months as well. Uh, I just watched uh, earlier this evening, I watched the Princess Bride release. I picked it up. Oh, nice. And uh, it's a wonderful packaging. And uh, uh, just it's a movie that I've always thought was so fun. So I do like that Criterion is picking out some of those titles and putting them into the collection. Uh, because I think it's good for the uh, the collection to have something like that, something that's enjoyable, that's fun. Uh, that's mainstream even, right? Yeah. I don't think it should just be obscure or foreign. So that's great to see they are cultivating some of those. Um, you know, I think with regard to Filmstruck, certainly it is sad to see that that's not going to continue. I think we're going to just find this is the reality in a, in a streaming age, in the digital age. Uh, these channels and these services can come and go at a whim. And you might have thought you had access to a great library, and then within a month you're told it's no longer going to be there. Yeah. And so that's the advantage, I think, of physical media and why I still have a great affection for physical media and keep 
collecting in that way because those are mine now, right? So long as I keep them in good shape, uh, to be able to continue to have those titles available. Uh, but I'm glad to see the Criterion channel will be launched in the spring. Uh, and well, obviously, I know you, Matt, also signed up as a charter member for it. Yep. So we'll be jumping into that. But I'm you know, interested to see what that's going to look like compared to Filmstruck because it won't necessarily have the same access to other titles that are outside of the collection mm-hmm. that are nonetheless very great and wonderful titles to see, to see in high definition. So interested to see what the future will bring. Hopefully, Filmstruck will emerge again in some form, but obviously we know the big companies aren't interested in niche markets and will drop those things where they don't consider them part of their overall plan. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a trend that's starting to kind of take hold here where, you know, every major studio is wanting to develop their own streaming service, right? So, you know, I, I think we've kind of been in this honeymoon period of, of cable cutting and people getting, being able to get access to just a enormous amount of content for not really that much money. But I think we're going to start to see you know, a lot of studios pulling their titles from other streaming services like Amazon or, or Netflix or, um, or Hulu and, you know, bringing that content to their own service. So in the future, I think this, it's actually going to get more expensive to access, uh, the kind of, uh, selection that we have now. And I think as a consumer, you're going to have to be a lot more selective in terms of what services you uh, subscribe to. And uh, so it's going to just continue to get more, I think, segmented uh, and more expensive at the end of the day. So we're, we're seeing that consolidation take place. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I suppose it was inevitable if you think about the, uh, the business model. Uh, but it does mean there's going to be kind of this period of, of change where, Things are going to go away for a period of time, and then things will pop back up. And yeah, it's it's going to be inconsistent, and and that's the risk you run depending on uh, on movies being delivered digitally. It's not all that different than the history of movies overall in terms of their availability, right? Prior to home video, you could only go to the theater, and they had limited engagements. They weren't around. You maybe get a re-release, yeah. So you might not have seen a movie or. You'd wait and, oh, my gosh, this movie's going to get released. I heard about it, so I'm going to go and see it, right? So it's it's actually kind of interesting in that while it's not the same experience as going to a theater, you are starting to have somewhat of a replication of how films were distributed and made available mm-hmm. uh, for the vast majority of the past century. Uh, I also think you might find that while the blockbuster has gone away, the film renting service is going to continue Right, it's just going to be moving from actual concrete stores into digital stores, because you're right. It'd be very expensive if you're going to get a subscription to every single studio. Yeah, uh, no one's going to pay for that, right? And so if they're pulling their product from Amazon, Netflix, or more and more, and just not really letting the the pre the premier uh, films, the most uh, popular films on those services, I mean, I don't think people are going to just keep subscribing to every single service that's out there. So you're going to wind up having renting options. People are going to do uh, a lot more just like what it was when you and I were growing up in the 80s, the 90s, where you just rented. Uh, But there's something to me about just moving into the digital that seems so less interesting than back when we were growing up. There's something about being actually in a video store and getting a copy of something. 
yeah. and going out with your friends to do it versus sitting around just picking something and streaming, it doesn't have the same impact, that same sense of magic that was there, I think, in previous days. But there is a kind of interesting way in which that is starting to reemerge, albeit in a digital way, uh, in our modern day. Yeah, it definitely promotes kind of ADHD, I guess. Uh, it's hard to sit down and just focus on watching one thing now because you have a hundred other things you can watch. Whereas, yeah, you went to the video store, you rented one, maybe two things if you got lucky, and yeah, it was more of an event and awaiting a, a movie to come out on on VHS or something was an event too. And I mean, I remember that period of waiting when uh, for the rental period to close, you know, when something was available for rental for several months and then. Uh, it was quite a while before you could actually purchase uh, the movie. So it's really an embarrassment of riches now. And, yeah, I think we're going to start to see more limited availability crop up again. And that might ultimately be a good thing. I guess people may uh, be forced to be a little more mindful of what they choose to watch, you know. It also could have the impact that people seeing things they may not have planned to watch i think sometimes you got a movie at the video store because you went out they hey, had no copies of the thing you went to rent but you're already out so you thought well i better get something yeah. and then you want to seeing a different movie so there could be a way in which this could happen but um maybe not as much because there might be less incentive well i didn't really go out so i'll just turn off and not watch anything or i'll just kind of you know keep bouncing between different things uh, but that's just a larger societal change that's taking place, I think, because of the preponderance of content yeah. that exists out there. Uh, nonetheless, I'll be interested to see how things go. Uh, it's a shame to lose Filmstruck, but it's great to still have the Criterion collection. Uh, the, I, obviously, the physical part of it, but the fact that they're going to have the streaming service and continue on with what they were doing with Filmstruck uh, in a new form, but nonetheless continuing on, I think that's great news and should hopefully take a little bit of the sting out of losing Filmstruck this month. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay, enough uh, with, I guess, indulging on our, <laughs> our thoughts about uh, streaming. We're going to indulge ourselves with what it is that we would like to see in the Criterion Collection. And hopefully somebody is listening and will take us up on our recommendations here. Uh, Matt, starting with our classic films uh what i would uh, propose is i'll i'll offer mine and then uh, get a chance to get your feedback on it uh my pick for a classic film that belongs at the criterion collection that i would like to see released is from 1980 martin scorsese's raging bull uh this is obviously a, a film that i think could say has stood the test of time it's now almost 40 years old and I think we could say that qualifies it as a classic. Uh, certainly one of the highlights of uh, the acting career of Robert De Niro, the directing career of Martin Scorsese, uh, was also a collaboration between Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader in the screenwriting. Uh, so I think truly a remarkable piece. Also stands as one of the final entries of that period of cinematic renaissance that occurred in the 1970s, right? So in some sense, people say this is sort of the last film of that era. And then it moved on, uh, Hollywood and uh, studios moved on to different focuses in the 1980s following Raging Bull's release. Uh, but, uh, you know, masterfully made. 
uh, just a wonderfully, beautifully created film with an incredible story about Jake LaMotta, uh, the famed uh, and uh, troubled real-life boxer uh, that had, as we learned from this film, as much conflict outside of the ring as he did in a... And we can see in this just truly a, a vision, uh, the beautiful black-and-white cinematography uh, with just inspired editing, uh, great, great uh, sound design. Yeah. Uh, so just all around, I think, a, truly a great film by any stretch of the imagination. You'd be hard-pressed to find people who don't. It's often cited as the best film of the 1980s and uh, sometimes even cited as the best work of Martin Scorsese as a director. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the American Film Institute uh, when they did their top 100 films of all time uh, list in 2007, listed this as the fourth greatest American film ever made. So obviously has a major impact, has a, a major voice in the sports genre uh, of filmmaking. Uh, so I, I really think it could be merited to be a part of the collection on any number of different levels. Uh, but I think you, you see a reason why it could be just for its content, its quality, uh, for its place as a entry representing Martin Scorsese or Robert De Niro, uh, and then of course I think its historical setting uh, when it was released and made. I think it also has a value and is an important film in that regard. So uh, I'll head over to you to get your thoughts. Uh, I know this is a film that you've seen, of course. Uh, what your thoughts are about the film and uh, whether you think it might belong in the Criterion Collection. Yeah, it's a great film. I mean, it's one of Scorsese's best. Um, it'd be a no-brainer for the collection. I mean, I think uh, Criterion could do a great job with it. Uh, I haven't seen the most recent Blu-ray, I guess, in terms of transfer quality, but uh, I, you know, it, it could probably. I'm not sure if it's 4K restoration or what, but it could probably deserve a a new transfer at this point. Um, but yeah, it's. It's outstanding. I mean, I, the some of the things that really stand out to me um, with it is, well, the boxing sequences in particular. I mean, I just remember the first time I saw it and the opening credits start and that that you know slow motion shot of Jake Lamont. One of the, the best openings in cinematic history. It's just like I it mean, gives it's you so much in one shot. Yeah, it gives you goosebumps, right. you know, and it just sets the tone right there. And it's such a simple opening in many ways but it's just like it's haunting uh, um to me anyway and and you just know right away that you're just in the hands of a master just from that opening sequence and and the use of music there but you mentioned the sound design i mean when i think of this film i think of the sound design and just the the use of of animal sounds in the boxing ring and how that's they're distorted and morphed you know into this kind of vicious uh undercurrent in the soundtrack that you don't necessarily notice unless you focus on it you know and and it's this uh really primal quality to the the sound design that adds so much to the um to the film especially in those in those boxing sequences and then the editing too of course i mean it's just it's a film where everything comes together right i mean the performances are great uh, the the use of black and white is very deliberate and 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 well crafted, and it, it's a very high contrast kind of stark black and white at times too, which 
gives a film a really a neat, unique look. And maybe that's just a consequence of, of the transfers I've seen. But uh, I think of that, there's always a part that for some reason sticks out to me is just a, a, a beautiful use of the black and white. Is It's a very simple dialogue scene between Joe Pesci and... Uh, one of his mobster friends, I can't recall the, oct- the actor um, right now, but he's kind of up on the steps and he's down on the street and they're talking to each other. And just the, it's just the cinematography there is just beautiful. It's just this high contrast kind of inky black and white. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, so I can't argue with that pick. I mean, it's a classic. If Criterion got their hands on it, it would be something very special for sure. Yeah, I would love to see. I have the Blu-ray, the uh, 30th anniversary Blu-ray, and it's a good-looking film, a good-looking transfer. Uh, but I would love to see a a whole new uh, 4K restoration. Yeah, because uh, I think you could really take this to new places now with where things are. Uh, you know, the the cinematography in this is just drool-inducing. Yeah, right? uh, I mean, so many levels. I think of the tracking shots, right when. Uh, you have the the tracking shot going of Jake Lamotta going into the ring for the champion bout, mm-hmm. right? That is just a breathtaking shot. But another shot that doesn't get talked about a lot is when uh, Jake Lamotta is horribly, horribly uh, beaten, right? And the way the camera moves around within the ring and then settles in on the rope with his blood dripping from the rope. I mean, it is just magnificent. And the way they rack the focus in that shot is just stunning. Yeah. So, I mean, there is just so much amazing camera work, truly inspired. Uh, and as you said, it, you know right off the bat, you are in the hands of greatness uh, when you watch this film. I don't know if I would say it's Scorsese's best film. That vote would probably be for Taxi Driver. But this certainly is, I think, maybe the quintessential Scorsese film uh, in terms of how much it uses cinematic technique how it, it focuses his own energy, the way in which he just laces it with the Italian-American uh, ethos and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a period piece. You know, it's set in the 40s. It's set in the 50s, 60s. And then you just look at this stunning performance by De Niro. And, he, of course, he's matched with excellent work by Kathy Moriarty and Joe Pesci. Uh, and then all the small bit parts are just perfectly cast too. I don't know the name of the actress, but the woman that plays Jake Lamotta's first wife yeah. <laughs> is very memorable. You know, you just go, wow, it's just a very, with only a couple of scenes, you get where that woman's at, right? And what's going on in her life. Whenever I cook so, a steak, I usually think of that scene actually. <laughs> bring it over. It's a piece of charcoal. Bring it over. Right? You know, it starts so nonchalant, you know, it's just, you overcook it, it's no good, you know, and then it just escalates. Yeah, it's great. It's a stunning, it's a, it's a stunning film. It really is. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's, there's no reason not to give it an upgrade. I think, uh, I think this would make sense. Uh, the Blu-ray is a, a good release, but uh, the one that came out from uh, Fox. But I just think that you could do so much more with it. And Criterion got it. Uh, I think they would deliver a great release. Um, so as far as my thoughts for the release, I would say, you know, certainly import, uh, carry over the release, the features that are already there. There's three great audio commentaries on that Blu-ray release. Uh, one of course with Scorsese and editor Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, you also have with cast, the crew. So I think it'd be great to keep all of those. Uh, I would also love to see some new interviews. I'd like to see a new interview with 
De Niro, uh, specifically kind of delving into his method acting uh, to really kind of explore that uh, and how this film uh, worked with him. I'd like to also see a feature on the collaboration between Scorsese and De Niro. This is one of the great actor-director combinations uh, throughout cinematic history, and they worked several times. This is maybe their most celebrated collaboration, uh, but I would love to see an interview exploring their work together, their career together, uh, which will continue, right, uh, this upcoming year with The Irishman. So I think there's a a lot to be gained by looking at at that. Uh, I would also like to see a documentary about boxing films. I mean, this is a genre that goes back to the very beginning of cinema, and it's got a lot of great entries in it, and a lot of them have you know, very predictable formulas, but they find different beats and ideas within them. You find a lot of true stories being told. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see just that genre explored and then Raging Bull's place within that boxing movie genre. Uh, particularly, of course, there's that natural compare contrast with this and Rocky. Uh, so I think that'd be an interesting thing to look at uh, what this did. And then lastly, I think it'd be great to have a documentary about sort of the end of the era, right? The transitioning from that very uh, American new wave that we had from the start of, say, Easy Rider up to Raging Bull, uh, and then the moving into the more blockbuster uh, entertainment that came about more in the 1980s. What was that transition like? What was the good? What was the bad uh, that came out of that? And the sort of uh, social and political and industrial realities that brought about that transition. So I think that'd be uh, some great supplements that could work in this. Uh, And then, you know, obviously I'd recommend keeping the original sound mix as well as a nice new uh, 5.1 mix as well for for this release because it is a great sound. uh, It's just a great sounding film. So it'd be great to preserve the original uh, and then also add to it a a new uh, release, uh, a new mix for this release. Uh, regarding the uh, cover art, my thought would be to do just that, as you referenced, Matt, that opening shot, have that silhouetted, hooded boxer in the ring with the ropes, uh, just a still from that shot, and then just in bold, big red letters like in the film, yeah. Raging Bull. Uh, so that to me is the is the shot or the cover that just belongs on this Criterion release if ever it were to come to pass. So that's my thoughts on a, a classic film deserving entry into the Criterion Collection. Uh, and unless you have any thoughts, I'll kick it over to you to hear yours. Yeah, that's a great pick. Um, I hope they do it. That would be great. Well, I think there is even maybe a chance. I mean, it's it's an MGM Fox release, so perhaps that title, because I think they did get some of those titles, because um, we see like the uh, Notorious is coming out again, for example. Yeah. So in theory... It could happen. Yeah, it, it's a possibility, I think. Well, my pick, uh, so kind of a disclaimer, I, I guess I, I usually kind of mention this on each of our um, Christmas episodes, but I guess I tend to think of films that I think are you know certainly worthy of inclusion, but maybe films that either haven't had a Blu-ray release or the Blu-ray release they have, uh, have had has been lackluster or... or not great in some way. Um, 
but also something that maybe could potentially happen, you know, with Criterion based on an existing relationship they have with the studio. Uh, so my pick for classic film uh, is the 1971 uh, neo-noir thriller Clute, uh, directed by Alan J. Pakula. So this is a Warner Brothers film that I think came at a pretty interesting time in in uh, cinema history. So this is 1971. We're coming right out of the, out of the 60s. You know, I, I think of this as kind of one of the first... Um, I mean, it's not really a political film per se, but it kind of has an air of paranoia to it. And some uh, unofficially kind of label this as the first in Pakula's Paranoia trilogy. So the other two films being uh, The Parallax View and All the President's Men. All the President's Men, of course, is kind of probably the one that uh, has gotten the most attention. But Clute, I think, is a really, it's a standout film. Uh, It's an important film, uh, not only from a historical standpoint, but just um, uh, from a cinematography standpoint. You know, this is Gordon Willis, and this is pre-Godfather. Uh, it's just such a bold film from a visual standpoint. I mean, I, I can't imagine how shocking this film must have looked to audiences at that time. You know, we're coming off of a decade that has very flat, well-lit cinematography. And here's a, a picture that is really just bathed in shadow. Uh, but in really in a beautiful way. I mean, it's got such a unique lighting scheme to it and um, a unique use of the camera uh, with tracking shots and the way it's very deliberately framed. It's very painterly in many ways. It reminds me of um, kind of the proscenium look, you know, almost looking at a stage sometimes. Uh, and it's, it's very striking. Uh, and, and that just creates a very unique tone in this film that uh, really helps its, its neo-noir aspirations. So... Uh, just a summary of the story, it's uh, about um, Clute, who's played by Donald Sutherland, who's a small-town cop turned private detective who's looking for, um, trying to solve a missing person case. So he's he ends up in New York City, and his lead is a call girl played by um, Jane Fonda, who won the Academy Award for Best Actress that year, another reason why this is an important film and it's about this case, right? So it's about his investigation, about his relationship with, uh, with Jane Fonda's character, Brie and the, the web that they, um, they find themselves in. So I don't want to give too much away for those who haven't seen it, but we've got some great guest appearances here as well. Roy Scheider is in the film, of course, a fixture of 1970s cinema, uh, just great um, uh, location work, you know, I, terrible fashion sense aside. I think the 70s was an outstanding uh, decade for film. And uh, this is a film that I feel a lot of people have forgotten. Uh, but I think it's one that's worthy of, of a restoration, worthy of rediscovering. Um, so I'm not sure if you've seen this or not, Nate. Uh, any any thoughts on Clute or uh, any impressions that you have i have seen it it's been a while uh so i have to admit i'm a little rusty on it i do remember liking it uh and i do remember definitely that 
paranoia aspect of it. It's it's obviously uh, from seventy one. It's pre Watergate, but yeah. it's in that ethos, right? And sort of that just sense of who can you trust? Can you trust public authorities? And so it's it is part of that overall cultural moment uh, with regard to that. And it is a stunning film uh, visually, as you said. I also remember being very impressed by the performances, both Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda. I, what I remember liking about it, you know, Jane Fonda play, playing the prostitute, uh, is that uh, it wasn't the the hooker with a heart of gold. Yeah, exactly. Right? Uh, that you, you, I mean, how many times has there been something like that? Yeah. And so this was like she is unapologetically a prostitute. She's not a good person, and she's a manipulator, and she's all those things. And this is her career, her job. This is what she does. She's in a violent business. There's great risk to her. Uh, because of it, uh, so it's it's an interesting film in that perspective as well. And I remember kind of when I saw it. Obviously, I saw it many years after it was made. But thinking, well, that's kind of refreshing that you don't have the the Hollywood trope of the hooker with a heart of gold. You have just a genuine. I mean, I don't know. I guess I I'm not an expert on this, but it seems like a genuine portrayal of what a hike price hooker would be like. Yeah. Right. So. Um, I, you know, I agree. It's an interesting film. Uh, not one that I would have thought of, but I don't think that that means it shouldn't be in the collection because this was certainly Jane Fonda is an important actress and this is one of her better uh, performances. And she, I think, uh, rightly could be said to be someone that should be a part of the Criterion Collection as, as a performer. Uh, I think as a neo-noir entry, right, that 1970s genre that emerged, uh, this would also be a worthy representative of that. So I think it's, uh, I think it'd be something I would actually be pretty uh, in support of if, if Criterion were to announce this one. Um, so yeah, I, I'm on board with it. The nice, nice pick, a surprising pick, but a good pick. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Jane Fonda's great here. I mean, uh, say what you will about some of her political choices in the past. Um, but you know, you, you can't deny the how excellent her performances and it's so, it's so earnest and it's so, uh, damaged, you know, in, in a very believable way. And she has this kind of nervous intensity to her throughout the film. That's very convincing. Uh, it's, it's a very unique performance too. It just, it's, it's hard to characterize it. It's, it's showy in some ways, but not to the point where it's distracting or, uh, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't become over the top to the point where it becomes unbelievable, but it is quite mattered and it's quite, um, intense most of the time, but you never seem to really tire of it. Uh, so it's, it's an accomplishment for sure. And, and Donald Sutherland does a great job and he's such a contrast to her, um, in, in his, his portrayal of Clute, uh, you, you know, I was wondering if this film was mistitled because <laughs> Jane Fonda's character seems it's to be It's an interesting title because I don't really think of his character as a title character for Ex- sure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's, again, yeah, I think it's something that was, or a film that's maybe been forgotten and, and deserving of, of a new restoration. So I, I don't think there's a Blu-ray available, uh, definitely not a Blu-ray available in North America that I'm aware of. And I do believe the DVD is out of print. It is available digitally in high def, but it's, uh, 
the transfer is not that great. So yeah, I, I think this has great potential. In terms of uh, bonus features, you know, this is a film I've heard Steven Soderbergh mentioned several times, uh, and I do think it'd be interesting if he did a commentary. I, I do enjoy his commentaries for films that are not his own, and he's offered those for Criterion in the past, so I think it would be kind of interesting to bring him back for that. Uh, new interviews with Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda would be welcome. I mean, they're both around, and I think they would have some interesting perspective on this film. Uh, definitely a, a feature needs to be done on Gordon Willis' cinematography and just uh, the great use of of widescreen images here and his use of lighting and how that influenced cinematography going forward. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure... Is this the film that got him the job on on Godfather? Or I I guess I don't quite know the history there, but I got to think that I honestly think he was just brought in because he was the guy available for the Godfather. I don't yeah. know that it was because of Clute. Yeah, he and Coppola didn't like each other on the Godfather. Yeah, I know they didn't quite get along, uh, and I think well, it's interesting because you watch featurettes on the Godfather and people talk about Gordon Willis's cinematography as being so revolutionary and and uh really riding the razor's edge between <laughs> black nothingness and an intelligible image but here it is include you know before uh before godfather so well i think it's great to highlight just him because exactly. conrad hall gets the credit being the the prince of darkness but yeah gordon willis is the guy that really he, he played really, around with darkness. Yeah, he really is the guy. And, and uh, you know, a new 4K transfer of this film, I think, would would really highlight his accomplishment here. Uh, so we'll definitely need a feature add on, on Willis. Uh, not only his work on this film, but his work on other films, I think, would be worthwhile. And, and just a feature add, too, on neo-noir and in 1970s cinema and, and how this film kind of ushered in not only films about paranoia but uh films that had an increasingly political uh sort of slant to them uh as you said there's there's kind of a mistrust of authority in this film and i go i guess that's maybe a precursor to some of the more overt, overtly uh political films later in that decade but i, th- I think that you could probably have a pretty good retrospective featurette just kind of looking at that era and the uh the environment of the vietnam war and how that informed uh, a lot of these a lot of these pictures in terms of cover art uh it's kind of a tough one i mean the, the posters for I, i'm usually a proponent of original poster art but the posters for this film are, are kind of rough i mean they're they're definitely 70s posters i do think if you found someone to do, you know, kind of a painted cover that's fairly dark and inspired by Gordon Willis's images, you could probably come up with a pretty interesting uh, piece of original artwork. So I, I guess I'd, I'd lean towards something like that, finding an artist that can kind of almost go for that Hopper-esque, uh, dimly lit style and come up with something unique. But I do think that this is probably a strong possibility uh, that this could come to Criterion. 
especially with their what seems to be a good relationship they have with Warner Brothers. So hopefully it's just a matter of time before we see this one. It would be fun if they got it. I mean, I would definitely be interested to see how they released this. And uh, it's a film I, I liked. I just haven't seen it in so long. And there isn't any great release sitting out there to pick up. So uh, it would be something worth um, seeing again. And so I would I would probably pick it up and buy it if, if Criterion put it out just as a way of bringing myself back to it because I did like it a lot. Well, moving on to the uh, contemporary picks, uh, to uh, update ourselves here a little bit, uh, I'm going to go ahead and indulge myself, Matt. Uh, so uh, obviously this is an episode based entirely on indulgence anyway, but no, this one's uh, very much indulgent. I'm uh, picking yet another Martin Scorsese film uh, for uh, my second pick here, and this would be 2013's The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, which I think is important in a number of different ways. Uh, but before I get into that, maybe just a quick uh, summary of it for those who wouldn't know about this. This is the story inspired by the uh, memoir, also titled The Wolf of Wall Street, by Jordan Belfort, who was a crooked stockbroker uh, that uh, laundered uh, or duped people out of millions and millions of dollars and then uh, eventually was uh, caught and went to jail uh, and then wrote a story about this. And so Leonardo DiCaprio plays the title character, uh, supported by Jonah Hill, Margot Robbie in her first major role, uh, and then a, a litany of different actors uh, in this. Matthew McConaughey has a very memorable uh, small part. Rob Reiner also has a very small part that's very memorable. Uh, but what I think is so unique about this film is that it's a great comedy. Uh, nearly three hours in length, uh, but that works. And uh, it doesn't feel at all close to three hours in length when you watch it. It's actually uh, astonishing how fast it does move. Uh, the film was a subject of great controversy at its release uh, because of its portrayal of Belfort. Uh, some accused it of celebrating him and of that lifestyle. It was also criticized for its uh, very blunt and really non-judgmental depiction of drugs, uh, sex, and uh, greed, right? It's, it's, so it showed a, a great amount of nudity, uh, and it showed a, a great amount of uh, illicit uh, drug use. Uh, and so it was interesting to see that kind of controversy at that time when it did come out. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a huge success. Uh, worldwide, it made nearly $400 million, and that's the most of any film made by Martin Scorsese. Uh, and it also was nominated for five Oscars. Um, I think you could say it probably is DiCaprio's best performance. Uh, what I think I like about this is that it's important as I think both an entry in seeing where Scorsese went as a director. Uh, Raging Bull, we could say him as an early, young, hungry director. Here he's the uh, composed controlled, successful, he's he's reached the pinnacle, he's won his Oscar, and yet he has every bit as much zeal and passion for filmmaking as you would have seen in him 40 years earlier. And I think the other thing that's great about it is that even though he was in his 70s when he made this, he nonetheless made it with greater zip and uh, passion and thought than probably directors half his age would have. And if you compared his work with this and his other work that he's doing right now to something like what Spielberg is putting out, there's no comparing which one of them still has a fire in his soul for filmmaking. So I think it's a great entry in just seeing Scorsese's career, one of the most important directors in cinema, uh, 
I think you know to see his career and have him more better, uh, more completely represented in the collection would be important. I think that it's a great uh, depiction of America as well. I think this film is isn't just about Jordan Belfort; it's about America, and it's actually got a pretty good sting to it. One of the things that's great about this film is it's very funny, but it's not afraid to occasionally put a cut, uh, a cutaway shot. To really help you say, okay, you're laughing about this, but here's what's really going on. So I'm thinking in particular the scene where uh, you have uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill hilariously fighting one another while they're high on quaaludes. And it's uh, absolutely uproarious. And then you get these cutaway shots to the little girl that's Jordan's daughter uh, watching this. And you go, oh, that's not funny at all. Right. And so it has this wonderful way of kind of sucker punching you as an audience for saying, what are you laughing about? Right. And the ending is one of the most powerful endings I've seen in the past 15 years, uh, where you have this just astonishing way in which it turns around and basically says, we're all in on this, right? We can sit there and we can judge uh, and condemn the Jordan Belforts of the world, but we're the ones that are handing them our money. And so uh, we're the ones buying what they're selling. And I think it has a great great insight there about just where America stands in relation to money, where America stands in relation to materialism, to, to celebrity, uh, to excess, right? And so it's, I think, just a, a great depiction of early tw- late 20th century, early 21st century America. Uh, so with that, I'll hand it over to you. Get your thoughts on this. Well, it's another very strong film by the master Martin Scorsese. So yeah, it's good. I, I, you know, this one, I, I, I need to revisit this one. I, I, I liked it a lot. I th- I've seen it twice, I think now. I mean, I saw it in the theater and I've seen it uh, again on, on video. I, I don't, I, I have to say it hasn't had the amount of rewatchability that some of other Scorsese's films have had for me, but I, I do find that it takes me a while to I, click is not really the right word, but I, I find the first couple times I see a new Scorsese film, I don't necessarily love it. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll love it from a craft standpoint. I'll love it from maybe a performance standpoint, but sometimes it just doesn't really click with me until I've seen it a few times. The, the Departed was kind of that way. The first time I saw The Departed, I thought it was well made. You know, I enjoyed it. I, I was kind of ambivalent about it, but that one is one of the most rewatched Scorsese films for me, which I just never expected first time I saw it. So I can see that maybe happening with this eventually, but it's, it's very, uh, it's expertly made. Right. And, and it's a dark comedy for sure. It's a very, very funny film. Uh, and it's done in such a way, like you said, that doesn't undercut the seriousness of the subject matter. Right. You know, this is a very serious study of materialism and, and the quote unquote American dream, right. To, to have the giant mansion and the, the Lamborghinis and the, the speedboats and all the stuff that we associate with, with being successful or being rich. And, and we see how the more Jordan Belfort acquired, uh, the emptier his soul became, right. I guess is one way to put it. So it's, it's a very serious uh, examination of that whole mess. 
uh, and just the the world of, of Wall Street greed. But you made a very good point. I think even Scorsese made this point in some of the, the PR he did for the film that uh, we're all a part of that, right? I mean, we all have tendencies in that direction, unfortunately, and it's something that we have to watch, and it's not... Um, it's not a, well, that's them. You know, that's Jordan Belfort. He's such a horrible guy. He did all these bad things. Well, yeah, he, t- he took advantage of a lot of people and, and, and did some pretty reprehensible things um, as the movie depicts, but those are, are uh, we're all capable of such things. So I think that's what Scorsese is trying to say too. Uh, and DiCaprio, you know, another great collaboration uh, with him, he, he he really brings it home, and the supporting roles are, are excellent too. And, and he, as you said, there's great passion here in the filmmaking. There's just an incredible uh, momentum to this film. The three hours just blow by. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a highlight of the past few years. So I, I can see. This is a good companion piece, you know, to something like Raging Bull. It's it's two films about excess in in very different ways, you know, by a filmmaker who is at very different uh, points in his career. So uh, it's an interesting pairing. And I would see it kind of as working as a good dual release, right? You have, you know, just the criteria will do this sometimes. You release a director or an actor, something, they have a couple titles of them, they'll put them out right with each other. And so I could see this being real great. You know, one's one spy number, the one's the next one after it. So I think that'd be kind of a great way to release them. Um, you know, part of this is, so the film's 2013, so we're looking at five years now. And um, for me, it's one of Scorsese's best films. And I think it really, to me, has held up over these past five years. I obviously, you know, in terms of its impact on others going forward, uh, it, that would take a little more time to really see what kind of impact it has. But I look at this film as being kind of almost the perfect example of how to handle this kind of comedy, this kind of filmmaking, this kind of social commentary. Uh, if you look at it compared to something like The Big Short, which is, to me, far too confident in itself, far too condemning and judging of its, of its, of its characters that it's depicting, of the system that it's critiquing. It doesn't have any sort of self-reflection in this. Yeah. Here's a film that's very self-reflective. And is challenging its audience to say, what are you doing, right? It's not just saying, hey, we're all so smart, we're all so much better than these people or anything like that. It's really trying to say, what's the fundamental reality at work here? So I think that sense, it is an important film. If anything else, it's just that it it gets so much better than other films that have tried this very same approach. Uh, It does it so much better than them. Uh, and I think five years removed, it still holds up very well. And I would not hesitate to show this to people as sort of, you want to see something about America today, watch this film. It'll help you to know something about us yeah. uh, and about Unfortunately. not just as a culture, but as an individual. Uh, so I think that's one of the great things that this film does offer, which is a very rare thing for a movie to do. Uh, not too many movies can do that. With regard to supplements, uh, what I would like to see, so the, the Blu-ray that was released looks good, sounds good but doesn't have really much in the way of anything other than, I think, a little fluff uh, PR piece. So I would like to see, again, a commentary by Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, as well as perhaps a commentary uh, by cast and crew. 
Uh, I think it'd be great to see a documentary about the real Jordan Belfort and particularly depicting this film and the reality of what happened, right? Because uh, there is sort of a sense of him as an unreliable narrator in this film. It's uh, being told through his narration. They play around with that a lot. So kind of to what extent is he still trying to sell himself through the way he wrote this book? Uh, I would also like to see something of depicting uh, and interviews with the people that were actually victimized and scammed by him. I think that'd be a great insight to really kind of understand what is it that happened in this kind of uh, rampant uh, theft and deception uh, that existed at that particular instance, but beyond this, that, right? I mean, there's other people that were that were doing the same thing. So I think it'd be interesting to see a documentary that kind of chronicles that. I also would like to see a feature on Scorsese and DiCaprio, just as there's that great collaboration and history with De Niro, Scorsese and DiCaprio have collaborated several times, and it looks like they'll collaborate again. So I think it'd be, again, interesting to see how did this actor-director combo work? Where does this performance fit in that? Uh, so I'd love to see that as well. Uh, and then lastly, I think it'd be great uh, to have just sort of a, a discussion about uh, Scorsese about comedy, right? Because you don't think of him as a comedic filmmaker. Sometimes comedy is in his movies, but this is not a normal thing for him to make a comedy. And so I would love to see his take on comedy and hear him talk about making a comedy uh, and how you approach that as a director as opposed to when you would do something like a drama film, a gangster film, right? So I think this would be an interesting thing just to hear his take on it and maybe even to hear what were his influences, what was his inspiration for this, uh, what kind of comedy did he use to help flesh out what he was doing here. Uh, so those would be my thoughts for supplements. As far as a cover art, I've had a hard time really thinking of this. The poster for The Wolf of Wall Street is just a very blah poster. Yeah. Uh, there's there's nothing to it that's very appealing. So I wouldn't want to go back to that or pull from that. Uh, there's a part of me that thinks, would it be interesting, uh, again, if, if you thought of this as being a, uh, if you thought of this as a companion piece with Raging Bull, if they're being released simultaneously, if you did that title cover art that I, I, I suppose, uh, proposed for Raging Bull, uh, could you do something that, parallels that or kind of works with that for this one, in which case maybe uh, take a still shot from this film uh, of DiCaprio kind of alone and then have, again, the Wolf of Wall Street just in big, bold letters on it. Uh, So something like that could maybe be done. The other thought I had was perhaps an artistic rendering of uh, an actual wolf, uh, but made sort of subtly to look like DiCaprio uh, on Wall Street. So I thought maybe there'd be some kind of fun way you could play with that as well. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, but I had, I had a hard time thinking of what I would want for cover art on this one. Uh, Just uh, a pile of quaaludes. How about that? You could do that too, right? Maybe you have the, the, the lemons, right? You have the lemons. Yeah. So, right. Well, Matt, if you don't have any other thoughts on that, then I'll kick it over to you for, to hear your contemporary pick for the collection. Well, my pick, uh, we might as well just have a Martin Scorsese box set um, because three out of four titles are going to be by him. So You're going with Silence. uh, I'm going with the 1997 film Kundun. Oh, wow. 
So. All right. Awesome. Yeah. All right. I'll let you have it. All right. <laughs> uh, so this is, I think it's another kind of forgotten film. You know, this is Martin Scorsese's biographical film on the life and writings of uh, the Dalai Lama. So it's has no uh, known stars in it, really, but it's really a, a beautiful, episodic um, narrative that follows the Dalai Lama from childhood to uh, the time where he's exiled. So it uh, covers events from 1937 to 1959. Uh, it's mostly set in Tibet. There's some uh, brief portions uh, in China and ends in India. And it really is a special film, I think. You know, it's one that I feel like has been actively buried by Disney for for political reasons. Of course, when it came out, it was very controversial. Uh, China was was quite offended by it. They, uh, I believe they refused to show some Disney films as a result. And, and Disney was forced to eventually apologize to China for releasing and making the film. And I, it's pretty tough to find. I mean, there's, there's a, a North American DVD release, I believe it's on anamorphic. And I, I don't think you can even buy this film digitally. There have been some foreign Blu-ray releases but it's it's just kind of been swept under the rug, so to speak, and it really is a shame because it's it's a beautiful depiction. You know, I say what you will about the the political background to it, uh, whether or not you agree with how the film presents the material. I just think, from a filmmaking standpoint, there's a lot to admire here. Uh, of course, you have Scorsese's direction. Uh, it's written by Melissa Matheson. And shot, of course, by the legend Roger Deakins. So a rare collaboration between uh, Deakins and Scorsese. It has a very beautiful painterly look to the film. Uh, again, it's it's very episodic. It doesn't have a traditional narrative structure. And it is kind of woven together with some pretty subjective kind of abstract imagery, especially with the... Uh, the sand uh, uh, mandalas and it was shot mostly in Morocco I believe but it's very convincing for Tibet Um, of course Philip Glass did the music very stunning score the uh, the ending sequence in particular is just it's one of my favorite sequences in the Scorsese film to be honest The, the escape to India sequence and just has this wonderful momentum to it it has uh, the editing is is great. Uh, there, again, there's intercutting between what, the events uh, of his escape and more um, nonlinear, kind of elliptical, subjective sort of imagery. And uh, Thumb Schoonmaker shines here again too. There's some really unique use of, of dissolves and and very quick cutting here and there that communicates this idea of transcendence right communicates this idea of of um uh finding enlightenment and there are uh, it's it's a pretty you know sobering examination too of of the revolutionary um mindset in china 
and the whole whole Maoist movement. So I don't think it pulls any punches there, which of course led to much of its controversy. Uh, unfortunately, it was it a failure kind of at the box office. Uh, oh, go ahead. What's that? I was going to say, it even kind of depicts Mao as sort of being homosexual almost. Well, <laughs> the depiction of him. So well, he's very effeminate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, his depiction is, is interesting for sure. And from a financial standpoint, it failed pretty miserably Had a budget of 28 million made only around 6 million. And again, I think a lot of that was, was due to some of the backlash and some of the attempt to, to suppress it. But I do think it's an important film. You know, this is really out of Scorsese's typical wheelhouse and it really is made with a sense of reverence and a sense of respect that I think a lot of people saw as very one-sided. But it's a film I've come back to many times and have been quite moved by, and I think it deserves a proper restoration and a proper release. And just because something's controversial doesn't mean it should be buried or should be ignored. And this is a, a film by... Arguably, arguably our greatest living filmmaker. I think it's time for it to uh, to reemerge. And what uh, what better place for that than Criterion? So I'll just hand it over to you, Nate, and see what thoughts you have on Kundun. Well, I definitely would wholeheartedly support this being in the collection. And uh, one of my favorite moments in the history of The Sopranos, that TV show, yeah. <laughs> there's that little cameo by Scorsese walking by and. Hey, Marty, Kadoon, I liked it. <laughs> so just a very funny little little bit there. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting film for the reasons you stated. It's obviously a beautiful film. I mean, one of the most jaw-dropping yeah. works of cinematography. There's that crane shot where the Dalai Lama is standing over the slaughtered monks, which is just so astonishing, mm-hmm. right? And just the... Um, the music is so great in this. So I you know, wholeheartedly uh, embrace this film on a craft level. As a matter of fact, I'll be honest with you, uh, part of me thought of this as a potential pick myself. You know, so I, I, I almost thought you were going to pick it when you mentioned Scorsese again for your, your, uh, your contemporary. So, well, it would have made this, I guess, a more bearable, tolerable uh, – episode because we'd be wrapping up a lot faster for yeah, our fans yeah so they wouldn't have to put up with us as long or gushing here <laughs> uh the reason why i didn't ultimately pick it was because i know about a little more than a year ago kino lorber said they were going to be working on this and uh put it out as a blu-ray in north america mm-hmm. i don't know if that's fallen through or if that's yeah, just I, one I, of those things that's going to get to eventually i don't know i just haven't heard anything since then so Right. I mean, it's been it's been over a year. There's nothing other than that announcement. So maybe, again, something with distribution rights. Uh, I did pick up one of those foreign Blu-rays uh, for it because I just – having the DVD, the old non-anamorphic DVD was just painful. So yeah. I did get that. But you're right. It would be so richly deserving of a full release. Uh, I think – the just the the uniqueness in this uh, as uh, as a part of Scorsese's directing canon uh, would be just worthwhile of people exploring that. And then I think, as far as the politics behind this film, it's an interesting and important film that way too. Uh, yes, it got made, it got released, uh, but it got buried 
almost as fast as it came out because mm-hmm. it wasn't to anybody's advantage to have this film being made. And that's, of course, when you have the, the international market, right? That's when you start having uh, totalitarian regimes, I guess, wielding a bit of influence. Yep. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I, I think... I still think that that Disney is afraid of this movie. Obviously, China's a big market, and and they they don't want to threaten that relationship. So, hopefully, Criterion, you know, has the the courage to to bring this back because obviously they have a relationship with Scorsese, uh, with uh, Age of Innocence just came out recently, of course. So. Uh, I see Scorsese's relationship with the Criterion as kind of him bringing back maybe some of these forgotten films of his and trying to give them a little bit of new life. And this really is the perfect uh, the perfect pick for that. You know, I, back to to Roger Deakins. Um, I always think about that that last that last sequence where he's going to India is just so chilling for me, and and haunting. And that that one shot when he's looking, when the Dalai Lama is looking back at those uh, horsemen that helped him get to the border, and then we see that shot of the bloodied horse and the camera just kind of slowly pulling back, and we see those men are dead. And then we cut back again, and he gives kind of that that sign of peace to them, and then they just they go away slowly. That those like four or five shots, I mean, are just some of my favorite in in Scorsese's work, and of course Roger Deakins' contribution is is great there. And those may not be the most painterly or the most beautifully beautifully lit shots in the film, but that that little portion always stands out to me is just very powerful. And I think, um, I, I hope, I hope people check this film out if they haven't seen it. So in terms of a release, it's a shame. It's forgotten. I mean, it, it really is. It a really is. Film. Yeah. I don't hear anybody talking about it. Um, I think a lot of people actually th- thought it was not a very good movie. And I, you know, I say, check it out again, you know, and, and understand Scorsese's intent here. This is not meant to be a traditional biopic. I mean, this is very much an episodic depiction of, you know, the Dalai Lama. Well, it's really a meditation almost, I would well, say. Well, it's a meditation. Yeah, it's a meditation, but it's it's also, I mean, it's it's a film that has ambitions beyond just depicting the life of the Dalai Lama, right? I mean, uh, it's getting into the tenets of Buddhism itself, and I think Scorsese is interested in exploring some of that cinematically. So I, and I think he feels that he has to include that material to do the story of the Dalai Lama justice and to maybe bring some sense of, of depth to his experience. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of a release itself, I think we need to have a new commentary by Scorsese on this film if if he's willing to do it, <laughs> uh, it'd be nice if he was frank about the uh, the controversy involved, and and it would be refreshing to hear his perspective on the film. Um, some you know, I guess it's a little over twenty years old at this point. Beyond that, I, I do think a, a uh, 
new interview with Roger Deakins would be great. It'd be nice to hear from him and uh, Philip Glass as well on their contributions to this film. I do believe there was a documentary made on the production of this film. I think it was released either on DVD or VHS or maybe both that is out there that you can still find kind of on the secondhand market. So bringing that to this release seems like a no brainer. And, um, beyond that, you know, a docu- documentary on the Dalai Lama, uh, himself would, would be welcome and, and comparing maybe the real life historic events with what's depicted in the film. But I, I don't think you need a ton of supplemental material here. I, I do think the film, you know, really needs to be experienced and I think much of it should be open inter- to interpretation for the audience, but it's, uh, yeah, it's one I hope people pay a little more attention to going forward. I think that'd be great. I guess a couple of thoughts that I have for supplements maybe would also be if you, I don't know if it's even possible, but you know, the actor that played the Dalai Lama in this was a Buddhist monk. Mm-hmm. And so could they find him, bring him up, see yeah. how this impacted his own uh, discernment and where he went uh, with this? Or is it something that he's maybe just, not available for those things anymore. I don't know, but yeah. that'd be kind of interesting if they could get him uh, to speak on that. Um, but again, I, I see your point about not necessarily wanting to present too much of an interpretation of the material for people. Yeah. Uh, because there's something beautiful about allowing somebody to, to draw their own uh, ideas out of this film. Uh, the other thing I think would be neat is if they had a documentary about, or at least a interview, a, a feature on the international market in filmmaking and how that impacts things, how that mm-hmm. uh, uh, stifles creativity or how it uh, comes back to haunt a filmmaker sometimes, right? So I think that would be just an interesting thing to see a real serious exploration of that. Yeah. I'd like to add one amendment I forgot to put on my Wolf of Wall Street supplements. Sure. The Half in the Bag episode from Red Letter Media <laughs> where Mike and Jay talked about it. I want that on there. For A, just the fact that it's a great episode of that show, but B, Red Letter Media is by far the best thing going on in film criticism right now. Yeah. And so I think they deserve uh, that kind of feature in the Criterion Collection. So I forgot to say that earlier. Is that is that the one where Mr. Plinkett was eating all those cheeseburgers, if I remember? I think that's correct, yes. Okay. But more is <laughs> it was the fact they did the compare and contrast with that and Pain and Game. Right, that that sequence that's right. right there, yeah, where they just understood like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese. This is what happens when you let those two men make a movie, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, anyways, I, sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier. Now, now I came and just stomped on your your <laughs> supplements. Sorry. Get out! You ruined it. Well, one other thing I wanted to mention on Kundun is I, Scorsese. He's not afraid to show the humanity of the Dalai Lama either. You know, it's not. I think some people level criticism at this film that it was almost too reverent or maybe too one-sided, right? But in my mind, if that were the case, you know, the Dalai Lama would have been depicted as really this holy, blameless kind of figure. But especially as a child, we see him as a child, right? And he's doing childish things and he's being put into this position of great power and authority and, and, he doesn't understand what he's in the middle of. And, and Scorsese, Scorsese does a great job of, of showing that innocence of, of childhood really juxtaposed with, uh, this world of, of, 
devotion, reverence, and 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 power. Uh, so that that's a real, um, I think, honest portrayal in this film that maybe goes overlooked. But I do think uh, uh, well, I probably should mention cover art for this too. You know, the the sand uh, mandala is it mandala or mandala? I, however, it's pronounced. We see that you know constructed throughout the film, and of course erased at the very end with that beautiful kind of high frame rate slow motion shot of the hand pushing through the sand. Just a you know a picture of that uh, that sand art with the title, I think, would be a pretty striking cover. You could almost go fairly psychedelic with the cover, much like the um, the Mishima cover, if you wanted to really make an interesting looking release maybe with kind of a uh, foil artwork sort of look to it i think this film would be appropriate for that as you can kind of go one extreme or the other you can go very elaborate you can go very minimalist right <laughs> depends on which uh which aspect of buddhism i suppose you want to uh, to depict um, i think you know your instinct is a good one for that cover art at my thought is just considering the film, not necessarily Buddhism, but the film, go elaborate yeah. because this film is visually so elaborate. Mm-hmm. It would be a, I think a better representation of the film to have that kind of cover. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we got some good picks here. Hopefully they'll happen. Uh, if not this year, maybe in the next couple of years. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Well, it's been fun, Matt, as always. It's always a good way to end the year. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, completing yet another calendar year and getting ready to start in on our next one. And for our next podcast, we will be talking about Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, which will be released on the first Friday in January. Thank you and keep collecting.